Hi, I'm Jeffrey Gordon. I'm the president of the American Birding Association and the executive producer of the American Birding Podcast. All of us at the ABA are grateful to you for being such loyal fans and listeners to this show. Right now, during our nesting season appeal, we're asking you to do what you can to help keep this show going and all the many free programs that the ABA offers, and particularly to help our young birder programs to ensure the next generation of leaders in birding and conservation get the mentoring and inspiration that has been so valuable to so many of us. Please, today, go to aba.org give or call us at 800-850-2473 and do what you can to help build a better future for birds and for people. Again, that's aba.org give or 800-850-2473. Thanks so much and good birding. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Forgive me for walking you through some of my own birding these days. I have been excited to return to my breeding bird survey routes this summer because I didn't run them last year because, well, you may remember this time last year there were other things going on. And because of the pandemic, the Breeding Bird Survey Lab, which runs the BBS, wasn't able to do the prep work, sending out all the information on the many thousands of routes in the U.S. and Canada and northern Mexico to the people actually running those routes. I know I know some birders who ran their ran their routes anyway, put the data in eBird. Kudos to them. I chose not to, though. In retrospect, it would have probably been the year with the least amount of car noise that I've ever experienced. So maybe I missed out. But obviously, things were weird last year, whichever direction you decided on whether to run your BBS route or not, I, I hear you. So as you can imagine, I was very much looking forward to a triumphant return this year. I ran my first one last week, the very first route I ever volunteered to do, Old Reliable Eden, North Carolina, and it was fantastic. It's like all the birds were waiting for me to come back. As soon as I stepped out of my car a couple minutes before the official start time of 5.29 a.m., I had an eastern whippoorwill which I had never heard before in the six years I've done this route, and which had not been recorded on this route since at least 2005. I also added four additional species, two of which were completely new for the route, Baltimore Oriole and American Red Star, both of which are sort of in that, maybe they're breeders, maybe they're late migrants, hard to say. Both are sort of scattered breeders in the area. But also yellow-throated warbler and bald eagle, which is just pure luck, almost made up for the fact that my regular grasshopper sparrows were not singing at the spot I usually record them. And I realized talking about my breeding bird survey route is like someone talking about their fantasy football team. Uh, Most people don't really care, but those who do are probably like really into it. But the point I want to make here is that the breeding bird survey is one of those perfect combinations of birding and data crunching. I tell you, it is more work to create an eBird hotspot for every one of my 150 stops over three routes, but it is so satisfying to look at the data. And I think one of the reasons I got into birding is because of the list making and the list making of the lists, the third and fourth order lists as you go down the road. Uh, I know listing has a bad connotation in birding sometimes, but I've never thought of it as a means to compete with other birders so much as just a really satisfying way to look at information. And the BBS scratches all of those itches. I can compare stops, compare routes, compare routes over multiple years, compare stops over multiple years. I love it. There's so much going on. But I would encourage birders, as I do every year, to look at getting a BBS route. If you're familiar with the songs of common species in your area, definitely 
go for it. 95% of it is identifying birds by sounds. And I usually get 65 to 70 species, which can feel daunting, but you probably know more bird vocalizations than you think you do. You know, sit down, think about the bird vocals you know. In my part of the country, on my roots, are birds like uh, red-eyed vireo, northern cardinal, morning dove, indigo bunting, chipping sparrow. Uh, these are breeding birds, not migrants, so you don't have to know all the warblers and all the sparrows and stuff like that. And there are roots available in nearly every state and province. I looked only Indiana, Missouri, New Hampshire, Newfoundland, and Labrador, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island are full up. Every other state, there are multiple roots. Ohio, a lot of roots open in Ohio. I know lots of birders in Ohio. Some of those roots are quite close to where people live. They're not all out in the hinterlands. Uh, California has a ton. Saskatchewan. I'm looking at y'all. The link to the BBS website where you can find those vacant roots is in the show notes. You might think breeding bird surveys are a weedy topic. Well, today we get so deep in the weeds, you'll need to tuck your pants into your socks. It's our annual look at taxonomic changes in the bird world with Dr. Nick Block. The North American Classification Committee determines those splits, lumps, and the order of the birds in your field guide. Nick and I talk about those changes potentially coming up this year after this week's Red Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first week of June 2021. After a huge report last week, things have calmed down a little, and we get to start this week with a mystery bird on Kudjo Key in Monroe County, Florida, that looked very much like an Elania, which is a cryptic group of neotropic flycatchers that make our impids look like flashy male warblers in terms of ease of identification. Though for South Florida, Caribbean Elania would be the most likely option, probably by a fair margin that's a species with an interesting history in the ABA area. For a long time, it was the only species that was on the AOS United States checklist, but not on the ABA checklist by virtue of a 1984 record from the Florida panhandle that was, by all accounts, fairly well documented. There were inconclusive photos and written descriptions of the voice, but no recordings. It was removed from the ABA checklist later for those reasons. Caribbean Alania, for what it's worth, occurs throughout the Caribbean on the islands off of Yucatan and Belize as well. Unfortunately, this bird from Kudjo Key is a similar sort of situation. Decent, but probably inconclusive photos. That has more to do with Alania's than it does with the quality of the photos taken. No vocals. And given the, I don't know, less likely but not impossible chance of something like white-crowned, greenish, small-billed Alania, this one might have a similar and frustratingly inconclusive future. To the other corner of the ABA area, a Paula's bunting, a Central Asian species of which there are fewer than 10 or so ABA area records, was the highlight of a recent trip to Gamble, Alaska, along with loads of other sort of lower level, more annual rarities like lesser sand plover and common snipe, among others. And one first record to note this week, a broad-billed hummingbird on the Missouri side of Kansas City is a first for Missouri, interestingly coming not long after Nebraska's first record of this species last month. Different birds, by the way. A relatively slower week of rare birds, but there's still a lot of other good stuff around for all the rest. Check out the Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba. You can also join the Rarity Sharing Group on Facebook. That's at aba rare bird alert or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. Early summer means it's time to talk taxonomy, and that means Nick Block, professor of biology at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts, and one time on the ABA's Recording Standard and Ethics Committee. He's done his time. 
Uh, for the last several years, the person I like to talk about when it comes to reading the tea leaves of the American Ornithological Society's North American Classification Committee, no matter how mixed our track record ends up being on that front. <laughs> Thanks for coming back again, Nick. It's good to talk to you. Thanks, Nate. It's it's always good to be back. And yeah, I, I'm lucky to be asked back when I keep getting things wrong. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least you're wrong in an interesting way. That's the most important thing. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know about you. This this feels to me sort of like a, a kind of a, a lighter docket of proposals. Um, I know that all the common name change efforts have been kind of kicked down the road. But even so, um, it feels to me that there's not a lot of, you know, checklist breaking stuff in this one, but I know you kind of gave the suggestion before we started talking that maybe that's not the case. What is your take on the whole body of proposals that have come out this year? Yeah, I mean, I maybe it's a little bit light on, say, the splits and lumps that, you know, we that, you know, we tend to be the most interested in because they affect our life lists. Um, but there's certainly some that have been in the works that people have been talking about for a while that now we have official proposals on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a couple in there that were readdressing proposals that had failed in the past, although um, not necessarily for ABA area heavy influence. Uh, but yeah, you know, it may be light a little bit, but there are a couple in there in particular that I, I think uh, are really neat. And I'm actually really curious kind of to see what the committee does. You know, when we talk about the North American Classification Committee, we should note that it, you know, it is the AOS area, which is slightly different than the ABA area, uh, which is, you know, the US and Canada and St. Pierre and Miquelon. And the AOS area incorporates all the way down to Panama and Greenland, too. So there's some kind of stuff going on in there. And especially, you know, there's always a ton of cool taxonomy going on with birds in the neotropics. As per usual, it's sort of a a middle America heavy proposal list. Yes. Yeah, that's unsurprising these days. Yeah, Yeah, that's probably true. That's where all the cool, cool ornithology is is happening. (laughs) Maybe once we, you know, expand the ABA area further. Down into down into the neotropics. At uh, least we'll Mexico. To, yeah. <laughs> then we'll then we'll be more excited about some of those things. But I do want to talk about some ABA area relevant proposals. And uh let's start with let's let's go into the deep end. Let's start with storm petrols. The Bandrum Storm Petrol uh split reevaluation. I don't know. There's there's a lot going on with storm petrols. And I know Bandrumps in particular has been one of those kind of black box birds you know very cryptic possibly three or four species in there um what are they trying to look at in this proposal they want to split it into three species yeah this is definitely right into the deep end because there are (laughs) many i won't say many there are a few possible outcomes basically and and, you know the proposal actually has like a few options that they could vote on or whatever um but like you said it's really complicated and and this has been kind of considered a species complex for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been studies showing that some island chains have populations of bandrumps that breed in the cool season and the warm season on yeah, the same island. <laughs> and, you know, whether or not they're different. Um, in fact, we already, so we already had one split. So the Montero's storm petrel from the the Azores uh, was split already. And that's a, it breeds there in the warm season. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of the reason that this proposal came along is that that split already happened. Um, and now from more evidence and whatnot, it shows that the rest of Bandrump storm petrel is no longer monophyletic, right? So this is the term I love, we love to use on this, mm-hmm. you know, monophyletic meaning that they're, you know, all the individuals in the group are each other's closest relative, you know, and okay. in this case, 
you lose that because Monteros is kind of buried within the rest <laughs> of what's currently considered Bandrump. Right. So we're looking at a taxonomic list. You've got Bandrump subspecies, Bandrump subspecies, Monteros, Bandrump subspecies, Bandrump yeah. subspecies, Bandrump subspecies. So you know that there's yeah. some, some funny business going on in there. Exactly. So this proposal is trying to address that and return the situation to which however many species they decide to split it into, they're trying to make those species at least monophyletic so that yeah. they're each other's closest relatives. And, <laughs> and that's where like the different levels come in. Um, so a, a recent uh, paper came out kind of with a really great genetic data set. You know, we've talked in the past about kind of this, these next generation sequencing uh, techniques that allow us to get thousands and thousands of markers, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and that's what they did. Um, and they got individuals from almost all the various band populations and were able to show that there was, you know, some pretty good genetic structure showing, you know, there really are differences amongst several different populations. Are there clusters among these yeah. populations? That seems to be like the, the important thing. It's like, if we can break them out into these clusters, at least that's a good first step, right? Yes, exactly. And, and the, the, they actually cluster pretty cleanly with this yeah. data set. You know, they've got thousands of these nuclear markers. And so the subjective nature comes in when mm -hmm. you want to say, okay, but how different? You know, just because they cluster cleanly doesn't necessarily mean they're different enough to be called species right. is where obviously the gray area of species definitions come in. But they're clearly not monophyletic as is bandrum. So something needs to be done. Mm -hmm. The most obvious split that will probably come of this is that the population in the Cape Verde Islands seem to be kind of the relative to all the other bandrumps, including Monteros, the thing that's already been split. So that seems to me to be a pretty safe split. It'll at least cause the, the thing that's most distantly related to be its own yeah. species. Yeah. But if it's the only thing split, that still leaves Monteros buried within bandrump. <laughs> And that's why, like, the recommendation, the 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 uh, Oscar Johnson who wrote the proposal, his recommendation is to make it um, a, a two-way split. So you end up with three species from the current yeah. one. Um, and to do that, basically, Cape Ver the Cape Verde population would get split. And then an unnamed, or not unnamed, but there's no common name uh, for this group that are the South Atlantic and Pacific populations mm -hmm. would get split. And then the thing that, most of us see in the ABA area, the band rump we see, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico or off the, the Gulf Stream um, is the uh, North Atlantic kind of population. Yeah, the grants. And, we call it grants. Yeah, grants. Yeah, yeah I was trying know, to remember. They'll probably give the, it a different name um, yeah. because the, you know, the appetite for um, epidemic names seems to be waning. But um, that's, yeah. I mean, that's sort of what it is. Grants, grants, storm petrel. Um, it's the, I want to say it's the warm season breeding bird on the like the Cape Verde Islands off of North Africa. No, it's the cold season. Oh my god, see, it's the cold there's, season because yeah, they come over so and many. they and they are molting. So they have just right. finished breeding when they show up in May. So they are the cold right. season breeders. Yeah. Yes, right. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um but <laughs> it, it goes to show that this band rev situation is very complicated. <laughs> it is. In in assuming kind of the North Atlantic group is split off from the South Atlantic Pacific group. That does mean that if you've seen bandrumped in Hawaii, where it breeds, right. that would now be a different, a different species yeah. from the East Coast bandrumped. Yeah. 
which is a pretty easy easy way to think about it. That, yeah, that's exactly. probably the easiest way for birders rather than trying to mess around with the North Atlantic ones. Yes. Now that now that we have, you know, Hawaii and the AB area, like that's mm-hmm. that's going to be the most obvious result is that now if you've seen it in both places, you're going to get a new lifer um, for the ABA area. This is one of those things that's like still more work to be done, though, because this is like a Gordian knot that's going to take a long time to untangle, I think. Yeah, because the Pacific populations could be further split. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. the South Atlantic gets split from Pacific, and then the Pacific populations could be further split into Galapagos and Japan and Hawaii. And yeah, they're varying levels. I have a feeling because some of those you're getting now into more closely related things, and there's not vocal data on some mm-hmm. of those. Mm-hmm. I, my guess is they're going to split Cape Verde, which won't affect us, and they will, and they'll split like the proposal recommends they'll split that south atlantic pacific group mm-hmm. from our north atlantic group so it would add one species to the ABA area. that's one. my guess yeah all yeah. this mess for plus one species mm-hmm. on the checklist yeah yeah but it's it's a really yeah it's a really fascinating kind of species complex yeah. because of this idea of potential speciation happening on the same right. islands just because of differences in when they breed it's really yeah, cool plag- pelagic birds are are full of that sort of thing and yeah. uh it just goes to show that there's so much more we need to learn about about those birds <laughs> yeah absolutely so let's go to an easier one i guess relatively speaking hmm. this one is uh probably the biggest one to affect the aba checklist and that is the split of mu goal from common goal so it's an old world new world split we've seen these happen before pretty frequently um yeah. which they gave the name short build goal which i don't know i'm not I like like descriptive names, so I'm I'm not sure. We we can talk about them, and we can. Maybe it's not relevant. But um, in any case, a lot of states in the United States have common goal and have been separating common goal from mu goal for a really long time. So this feels like a like a split that was long time in the making, and it's just sort of making it official. Yes, I think that that's a great way to describe it. You know, especially folks you know here in New England who see. Mm you know, Mughals, most of those have been from the old world. We're about half and half in North Carolina. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, when we, and we've been paying attention to that for quite a long time, mm-hmm. right? So uh, it is something that's been, you know, kind of suggestive before. The data were very suggestive, but the previous work, or at least the previous work that was kind of used to kind of to make decisions, didn't include all the subspecies of the old world group. And so kind of things didn't move forward. At least that, that's mm-hmm. my impression. It was like, you know, things were just kind of stuck. Um, but what's interesting, and I didn't know this, is I think it was Pam Rasmussen wrote this uh, proposal, or she mentions a dissertation that was published in 2011. And it's not, I mean, it's not published in peer-reviewed literature, but it has a great data set of individuals from all the subspecies hmm. and shows, and it's mitochondrial DNA only. You know, we've talked about the pitfalls of that. But it shows that short build, which is, you know, our, our mugle, right. Mm-hmm. Um, is just as different from the old world mugles, which we'll call common goal, right. It's the differences between those two are almost as big as the difference between short build and ring build. Wow. So it, yeah. it's one of those, it's like, huh. well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what took so long if that's the case? <laughs> Exa- exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. previous work did show that there was a pretty big difference between Kamchaka yeah. goals, which are part of the common goal group, and short build. But but the other subspecies weren't included, and so nothing happened. Yeah. But this dissertation includes them and basically just confirms what was, you know, probably pretty clear was going to be the, the outcome that 
the other old world groups are just as different as mm-hmm. Kamchaka is from short build. So there's also, um, you know, differences in morphology and vocalizations that are very diagnosable. Um, there's a great article that came out in, in Dutch birding in 2016 uh, that a lot of, um, you know, gull fanatics are very familiar with. And uh, they show that, you know, they're very diagnosable through those kind of mm-hmm. traits as well. So I, I, the, even though there's no nuclear DNA, I, to me, this is a, a clear split. And I want to say that the old world authorities, like the British Ornithological Union and, and you know, the, effectively the AOS's equivalent overseas have, have had this as a split for a long time. Yes, there are definitely authorities that have had it split yeah. for a while. Yes. So what do they do with Kamchatka Gull? Kamchatka Gull stays with common gull, right? Or is it? Yes. It's one of those. Is it one of those ring species? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't call it a ring species. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't remember how much they might have talked about how how Kamchatka might integrate with the other two kind of old world mm-hmm. subspecies. Um, I do remember though that there's basically there's not really enough evidence. The, the genetics are not clear, like it's not monophyletic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, basically the evidence for splitting Kamchatka gull is nowhere near as strong okay. as what seems to be clear evidence for splitting short build. So yeah. I would anticipate that we're going to see what the proposal recommends is that our mugle, which is probably going to get called short build gull, is going to get split we'll from the old world group, which is probably going to get called common goal but yeah who knows about common names but yeah i i think it'd be pretty surprising if it doesn't get split you know that's probably a a death knell for that split now that i said that um (laughs) but uh so what that means you know for birders is that a lot of birders especially in the on the east coast who have seen common goal are going to get a new aba lifer yeah yeah i i am all for as i said before descriptive name short build goal it's a direct translation of the mm-hmm. uh subspecific name brachyrhynchus short build goal laris brachyrhynchus yeah. um i you know it's it was weird to me that they resist changing the name for the daughter species in some species but they go ahead and do it for others uh, because i don't <laughs> think anyone would have blinked if they would have stuck with mugle because mugle is like even birders overseas like that's what they call it they call them the north yeah. american birds when they get over there mugle Whatever. I, I mean, <laughs> short bill goal is fine. I will get used to it, whatever. But uh, I just, it, it was just interesting decision. That's all. I, I completely agree. I yeah. have not found there to be a lot of clear precedent for when the old name is kept <laughs> and right. when it's changed. You know, yeah. let's, you know, look at winter wren as an example kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, who, know, I, who knows if which, which way they'll go with common name. <laughs> It all depends on what people use, and uh, who, I would it would not shock me if people continue to use Mugle and short Mugle kind of gets I don't know yeah. I don't know it, it depends on what Ebert does honestly. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of true. I mean, yeah. I, and and you know if there are other authorities, you know these established world authorities that are using Mugle, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do that just to try and stay consistent. Yeah. All right, so let's let's talk lumps. We love hey. lumps, maybe we don't love lumps. They're interesting. <laughs> McKay's bunting, uh, known as a Alaska, I don't know if it's an Alaska endemic. It's a near Alaska. It might be, right? I'm pretty sure um, it is. Yeah. It's only breeds on St. Matthew Island mm-hmm. in the Bering Sea. Um, they, they effectively look like an extremely white version of snow bunting, which is found widely across the Northern Hemisphere. But there is evidence, perhaps, that it should be just a very distinctive subspecies of snow bunting and should be lumped back into it. Um, species removed yeah. from the ABA checklist. 
uh, et cetera. I will, you know, I, I, as someone that has looked for McKay's bunting in Alaska, I, I would not necessarily, I did not find it. I would not necessarily have a problem with this lump because they're very <laughs> difficult to pick out of those big flocks of snow buntings. But yeah. uh, what do you think about this lump? Do you, we don't see a lot of lumps these days, but, um, this feels like a, like a decent candidate for it. It feels similar to yeah. the Northwestern crow last year. Yep. Yeah. This is one of the hardest hardest species to get, you know, regular yeah. occurring species to get because of its remoteness. But um, I would wager that people will be a lot less worried about getting there soon. <laughs> um, and this is one I'm actually really interested to see what they do, because yeah. I think, you know, I've said things in the past about kind of consistency of their decisions kind of sometimes confusing me. And this is one that's going to fall into that category because the proposal is kind of triggered by uh, someone who published something recently about plumage patterns mm -hmm. uh, being more close to overlapping than mm -hmm. maybe previously thought. Although, to be honest, I was unconvinced by that. To me, they're still distinctly different, even on the, you know, the, the range of their variations. To me, there's no overlap at all. Hmm. Um, but there was a pa the paper that came out a couple of years ago that, again, used this really large genomic data set to look at this question. I was, you know, maybe not surprised, but I think this proposal could have been put forth after that paper came out because they found that individuals were genetically like diagnosable. Like if you, if you, if you sequence a particular individual with extremely high confidence, you could say which species it came from, mm -hmm. but there were no like fixed differences between the group there's no there was no like marker that said oh this is only oh, really? found in mccabe huh. this is only found in snow right the reason they're able to tell them apart is just that the the frequencies of these markers were different enough that you could diagnose them um and the data also show that there's ongoing or at least likely ongoing low levels of gene flow between the two yeah. Um, I don't think we have any direct evidence of hybridization, but the the data suggests that it does happen at a low rate. Which makes sense. I mean, not a lot of people get there. St. Matthew's is not St. Matthew Island is not a a place where people go. I mean, it's way out there. It's yeah. further out there than Gamble, I think. It, yeah, it's definitely it, it, yeah, and the, the logistics of getting there is certainly more difficult as far as yeah. I understand. So but it, there there there's circumstantial evidence, or maybe not circumstantial, like Snow buntings have been observed on the island, at least very close to breeding season, but mm -hmm. not, you know, nothing's been confirmed that they do breed there uh, or have. But this proposal does not have a big genetic component, which is sort of unique for proposals these days. Yeah. And so the the person I'm forgetting his name, Winthrow, Jack Winthrow, maybe um, I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Uh, he's the one who recently published this. Um, piece in Western birds on kind of plumage mm -hmm. variation in, in the species. He does mention this the, the study that came out, but um, but no, he does he doesn't uh, go into great detail about it. But he mentions the the aspects about there being no fixed differences between them and things like that. Yeah. That big genetic data set confirmed a previous genetic data set that showed that there probably was some low levels of hybridization going on as mm -hmm. well. To me. This is one of those gray areas, you know, yeah. that basically it's, is it a species or subspecies? And I can't help but compare this like in a very similar way 
to the Haida Gwaii owl, the Sawat hmm. owl. Oh, right. So we both wanted that one to happen, and it did not. I mean, I can, you know, when I read their their um, reasons, it's it's one of those where okay, it's it's subjective, and mm-hmm. it's fine that they, you know, I, I disagree. I wouldn't have done that, but like, it's a very subjective area. But the data, and my impression, are quite similar. Gene flow hmm. estimates are very similar. You know, it's the same thing where they do co-occur in the winter, but not during the breeding season. Right. Like there's there's a lot of similarities between the two. Hmm. And as we know, that Haida Gwaii owl split failed. Yeah. If this fails, if the lump fails, I, that's where I'm just going to be really confused. But Because to <laughs> me, they're extremely similar scenarios. Right. In, in, in multiple ways. You know, diagnosable morphologically, there's a lot of similarities to the scenarios. So we'll see. You know, it's, it's one of those things. I, I'm not sure what they'll yeah, do. Yeah, that's but, a total mystery. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's it's an interesting sort of look at speciation. Where do you draw the line? Like, where do you want to yeah. put the line for? Not And it's not even just with species. It's genus. It's family, even. It's uh, all this stuff. I don't know. It's it's just a really difficult thing to do to try and put those sort of very human constraints on uh, active <laughs> <Yes>. evolution. <laughs> It's tough. That's exactly right. It is always species and yeah, and genus delineations will always be subjective. They always have been. Yeah. They always will be, in my opinion. And you know, even though I, I have, you know, admittedly kind of uh, uh given the committee maybe a little bit of a hard time, like in good <laughs> I'm in in a good natured way, I very much respect that they're putting themselves out there with these decisions because yeah. they're not easy decisions. Not easy. And you will not have everyone agree with you. Like it's subjective. It's true. Some people true. won't agree. That's true. And um, that's just the way that's that's kind of the nature of taxonomy. It's going to be messy. Let's jump ahead to another messy taxonomic question. <laughs> this time a split. Hmm. And one that I thought was really interesting because it's one that has been sort of out there for as long as I've been a birder, you know, decades, probably even longer. Um, people were noticing the differences between two subspecies of Swainson's thrush, these so-called russet-backed and olive-backed Swainson's thrushes. Now, I live in the east. What we have mostly over here are the um, olive-backed ones on the east and the russet-backed ones are the Pacific ones. There's a lot of differences going on between these birds. Some, a lot of field guides show them both and make the distinction between the two. This is a question that's been out there for a long time. What do you think they're going to do now? Is, and what new evidence is out there to suggest that maybe we have two different Swainson's thrushes out there? You know, there's a, a couple of researchers who have been kind of adding to the, our knowledge of this species complex uh, for a mm-hmm. while. And so we've kind of slowly been getting new data. They're obviously distinct kind of morphologically. You know, we mm-hmm. can we can see that. And that's why we've they've been described in field guides for quite a long time. And it's another one of these examples of they come into contact in kind of the Pacific Northwest, British Columbia, right. you know, think like Cordilleran. Pacific slow yeah. fly catcher, though, though, you know, we have a There's number a of, species of stuff up that, there. That, That's yeah. a messy area. <laughs> it's a very messy area. Yeah. And they, they do hybridize. There is a hybrid zone where there's ongoing hybridization, including back crosses. So it's not, you know, it's not just like hybrids die or anything. There's definitely back, there are back crosses that happen, but they have very different migratory routes. Mm-hmm. So russet backed winters in Mexico and Central America, olive backed is basically entirely in South America. And so there are these migratory differences, which are believed to maybe help keep them separate because hybrids mm-hmm. have been documented. They've actually put, you know, uh, transmitters on them. They've just shown that hybrids sometimes will have really wonky migratory routes. Hmm. 
Maybe those are the ones that end up in Eastern North America in the winter. May, I, I, you know, that wouldn't surprise me at all. There's a handful of records actually. of winter Swenson thrushes out here. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But that 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 difference is clearly, that means those hybrids that are going wonky, like, are, are not going to be able to do well. And so mm-hmm. it is a boundary yeah, that in might... Eastern North America in the winter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think they're going to survive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're a robin. But, you know, uh, so there there's this thing that something is keeping them apart. There are other species that are like this. Baltimore and Bullock's Orioles mm-hmm. are, you know, it's one of the things that's believed to keep them kind of separate, despite the hybrid zone. In general, even though we've, you know, we can see the morphological differences, the the genetic difference is is pretty tiny. The song differences are almost non-existent. There are some kind of average differences, but the, the it's a really weak kind of differentiation. Um, you know, there is the ongoing hybridization. I, you know, I just I'd be surprised if they split this one. It, mm-hmm. it just seems like there's too much evidence of ongoing gene flow um, and really kind of weak differentiation between them. Like there is differentiation, but in my opinion, it's at the level of subspecies. And uh, the proposal actually kind of compares the two Swainson's thresh groups to other species splits, like in particular Bicknell's and Great Cheeked, right? That was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's a recent split in that group that, you know, if if those are different enough, then Mm -hmm. we should split these two. But they showed that the differences between the Swainson's thresh groups are actually much smaller than Mm. Bicknell's and Great Cheeked. So again, in my opinion, more support for the current subspecies designations and, and kind of overall just weak support for species status, in, in my opinion. Yeah, that that's just as well, um, you know, but it is something for birders to sort of be on the on the lookout for. I think it's really interesting yeah. to kind of even if even if, you know, the it only counts as one mark on your on your checklist, um, finding those sort of field identifiable subspecies is always kind of a, a fun aspect of birding when you see something that that is unexpected like Absolutely. for instance a russet backed thrush in um in the eastern united states i think if they were as you know more closer in, in differences in call and genetics as big yeah. nails and gray cheek they might have a chance but i think because they're they're really quite a bit smaller i don't i don't i don't see it getting split so there's a couple other things that i i put down on our list that might be interesting um you know spruce grouse and most of that is just sort of understanding that it's not quite related to the birds we thought it was and might be more related to um, capercaillie and yeah. black grouse and old world. That, that was kind of cool, um, though that won't really change a whole lot about where spruce grouse is and in North America won't add any species or anything like that. Yeah, no no Franklin's grouse split yet. No, no yet, not yet. <laughs> the the Franklin's grouse that was and might be again down the road. <laughs> could be, could be. Yeah, um, the sedgren, the kind of long-awaited split of sedgren from the migratory North American population uh, yeah. from the sedentary South American population. Uh, that was kind of interesting if <laughs> the kind of politics of the South American <laughs> checklist committee yeah. just deciding to do it. And um, yeah. without any sort of input from, I, I didn't understand all that, but I thought it seemed like there was a little bit of, um, I don't know, hurt feelings there. Um, but obviously <laughs> that's a split that is, that needs to be done. Yeah. I'd, I'd be surprised if that one doesn't get split. I mean, yeah, the South American committee committee already passed the split. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so the split is our migratory sedrens, like, so our mm-hmm. ABA area sedrens from all the others from Mexico down right. to South America. Yeah. Um, so if you've seen like the sedentary populations in Mexico or something like that, they would now be considered different. Yeah. Um, grass there's, yeah. Grass run. But you know, there's a whole lot more complexity going on in mm-hmm. all those sedentary populations in South America. So that I, I anticipate that thing to be split up 
further at some point down there. Yeah. But especially with those set, if the populations are sedentary and you know non-migratory, mm-hmm. they're kind of staying where they are. They're they're kind of going their own genetic way in a lot of ways, especially the ones yeah. in, from West Mexico and the ones in you know southern South America, temperate South America. Um, yep, didn't seem like there's a lot of gene flow there. <laughs> no, uh, very little, very unlikely. Yes, <laughs> short short winged bird and <laughs> not, not yeah. getting around. Imagine um, Sedra. Yeah, <laughs> those those are the ones I kind of pointed to in uh, in North America. You are there any? Anything else that's going on that you think is just sort of interesting that might be going on in the southern part of the AOS area or might be relevant to ABA area birders down the road? I have spent a fair amount of time birding in Mexico, so I'm always kind of curious to see what might get split or Mm -hmm. changed in that area. And there are three kind of proposals where so if birders have, have, you know, spent time in Mexico, there's a good chance they may have seen the species involved. One one that is probably the clearest split is uh, Cenarius owl, which is sometimes mm-hmm. been called Mexican barred owl, um, which is not is not well known. It wasn't uh, until a paper from Andrew Spencer and Nathan Peeplo, I think last year, uh, it was like the first published vocalizations of it, I think. Oh, really? And wow. photos. And so at least, you know, analysis, at least as far as I know, um, which I think part of the reason it hadn't been split yet is because that info just wasn't available. And yeah. it you know, additional information confirmed what genetics showed that basically Cenarius or what will probably be called Cenarius, our barred owls, and then fulvus owl, which is the relative further south in Mexico and Central America, um, are all kind of equally related to each other genetically. So they're all, Hmm. you know, equally distant. So I'd be shocked if this one doesn't pass because basically the only way it would make sense is if you split it, or you lump all of them, which doesn't (laughs) make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's cool. Um, and, uh, if you've been in Western Mexico, you've probably seen Godman's euphonia, which has been considered a subspecies of scrub euphonia, but it has white undertail coverts. And a paper last year showed that there are some distinct vocal differences Hmm. and genetic differences. So that's another one where, you know, the evidence seems strongly to suggest that that deserves species status. I think that's really interesting because a lot of those are based on vocalizations that maybe weren't available before. It goes to show that like hobby birders traveling to these parts of the world and getting, I don't know, even like cell phone recordings of things like Cenarius owl and all that are, you know, able to contribute to the, the taxonomic understanding of these birds. Absolutely. That, that's a great way to put it. You know, people like Andrew Spencer and Nathan Peeplo have been doing amazing recordings and, and advancing our knowledge of, of bird mm-hmm. vocalizations kind of all over the world. And um, and uh, yeah, that's absolutely something any birder could do for sure. Thank you so much, Nick Black, for shedding light on these taxonomic issues. Once more, he is a biologist, member of the, well, former member of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee and uh, at MLB Birder on Twitter. Um, always nice to talk to you about this stuff. Fingers crossed that we get, uh, you get some splits here. Yeah. Maybe my crystal ball is getting clearer. We'll see. Maybe. But yeah, th- maybe. <laughs> thank you again for having me on. I always enjoy this. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by joining the ABA. As I've said before, members get more. You get great magazines. You get discounts to our partners and opportunities to travel with us. Get more information at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some shout outs this week to Theo Goodwin of Spokane, Washington, Brad Shell of Schofield, Wisconsin, Inga Daw of New York, New York, Amy Atragianese of Easton, Connecticut, Barb and Max DeShaw of Short Hills, New Jersey, and Tom Henry of Germantown, 
New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you all so much for doing that. We really appreciate it. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who found the segment with Nick Block so in the weeds, he had to douse his earbuds with permethrin before listening. Technical production is by John Lowry, who didn't think the conversation was all that weedy until he heard grasshopper sparrows in the background of Nick's track. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who found the conversation so in the weeds that they reported me to the Federal Drug Enforcement Agency, who got really confused at the banner of Storm Petrol stuff and just sort of backed away slowly. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or at ABA. This conversation was so in the weeds that ever since I finished talking to Nick, I now have a flock of American goldfinches flitting around in my recording studio, and they're surprisingly vicious little things. Can someone please help me? Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nick Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.